Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I am writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor, and Weasel Holiday, Elisa Quitney. And I'm story expert and Rapunzel Bazaar, Lonnie Diane Rich. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about Calliope, issue 17 from the Sandman comic book series. Calliope was written by Neil Gaiman, inked by Malcolm Jones III, and penciled by Kelly Jones. Daniel Vazo did the colors, Todd Klein lettered. This issue was edited by Karen Berger, assisted by the mighty Tom Pyre, covers by Dave McKean. You want ideas? You want dreams? You want stories? Time to wake up. Calliope, it's May of 1986, and a young, creatively blocked writer named Richard Maddock trades a bazaar to Erasmus Fry, who gives him a young, naked woman in return. She is Calliope, a muse, and Erasmus has had her locked away for 60 years while he wrote best-selling novels. When he gives her to Richard, Calliope objects, saying that Erasmus promised he'd give her her freedom before he died. Erasmus lied. Maddock takes her back to his home, to the room he's prepared for her on the top floor, and proceeds to rape her. He worries for a moment that it might not be okay, but then the words start to flow and he is finally able to write his overdue second novel. Up in her room, Calliope calls upon the three for help. They say she was lawfully bound and there isn't anything they can do, but maybe one of the endless? They give us some exposition that Calliope and Morpheus, who she calls Aeneros, were a thing. She had his son and they despise each other. Calliope doesn't want to turn to Dream. She's still angry with him, and he with her. They tell Calliope that it doesn't matter. He's been captured by mortals, too. When Maddox finishes his book, Calliope asks to be freed, but Maddox refuses. Through the years, he is celebrated as a genius, book after book after book, then screenplays and plays. He's nominated for Oscars and gets to direct the movies of his books all while Calliope remains imprisoned in his house. In 1989, upon his release, Dream shows up to visit Calliope, who asks him to force Maddox to release her. While doing a TV interview, Maddox discovers that Erasmus Fry died the previous summer by suicide after writing a letter to his publisher insisting they put an old novel of his back into print. Maddox goes home to find Dream sitting in his house waiting. Dream asks him to let Calliope free and Maddox refuses. He needs her. He needs the ideas. Dream decides to give Maddox exactly what he wants. Overloaded with ideas coming so fast he can't write them down, Maddox starts to lose his mind. When he doesn't have paper, he writes on the walls with his fingertips in his blood. He goes to see Felix, the doctor who got him the bazaar in the first place, and tells Felix to go to his house and tell Calliope that she is free to go. When the doctor gets there, Calliope is already gone. All that's in her room is a copy of Erasmus Fry's book. Here comes the candle, the one he was trying to get republished. The tagline reads, she was his muse and the slave of his lust. Calliope thanks Dream for saving her. She wants to know if he still hates her for what she did, and he says he doesn't. She wants to spend some time with him in the dreaming, but he says it's not a good idea. At the doctor's house, Richard Maddox's mind is finally quiet. He tries to remember Dream, tries to remember what Calliope called him, but he can't. It's all gone. 
All right, Elisa. So here we are with Calliope, the first of the four short stories that make up volume three, Dream Country. Um, and what did you think of this one? I really, Calliope, shall I say, is one of the stories that really stands out to me mm-hmm. in the whole Sandman mythos, even though it's a really difficult story. It's, um, it's a, for me, it's a story about the disconnect that can be between artists and their art. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I connect with it because of the many writers whom I really enjoy, even though they're problematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also think about it in a more personal way because I certainly, like like most writers I know, I have this difficult relationship with my own muse sometimes Mm I I'm probably not as kind to my muse as I should be and and sometimes (laughs) I worry that I scavenge too much you know uh, around Mm -hmm. the stories and personalities of my friends and intimates and uh so so I connect with the story on on all those levels how about you um, Calliope is a really difficult story for me to, um, to kind of connect with because I get overwhelmed by, you know, once again, like sexual violence, you know, it's, it's a difficult area for me to go into with stories. Um, that's not to say that it shouldn't be done or that it's not good. I mean, it is, it's, I think like objectively, it's a really interesting story well told. Um, it's just difficult for me to to like connect with. I find myself very much resisting um, gaining access into this story. Although like as a writer, you know, as you said, like all of us who are writers can understand that panic when you've got the two novel contract and the second novel hasn't even been started and you don't know what you're going to do. And oh my God, they've already given me money for this. Um, And that sense of wanting it to be good and then freezing up and not having the ideas. Like there's so much of that, which is really relatable. And then, you know, we take that relatable fear, which is what the muse, you know, like the muse, if we're talking about these beings as being created from human ideas, right? The anthropomorphized ideas and, and needs, right? The idea that there is a muse, you know, is something that creative people made so that they would have someone to to go to who could help them with this very particular problem. And um, so Calliope having been created to serve that need and then being so completely abused in her purpose, you know, um, it's difficult, you know, it's a difficult, uh, it's a difficult story for me. But I think there's lots of interesting things here to talk about. But let's go ahead and start with, once again, Dave McKean's cover. Um, What did you think about this cover? Well, as as we've been talking about throughout the the podcast rereading of the Sandman. If if you were going to teach the master class in Sandman, the cover is such a great mm-hmm. opening place because you know here we have peacock feathers, which is the ornament of the strutting male bird, and they they stare out at us. I think like watching eyes. At least mm-hmm. that's what we see on the left. On the right, the vivid turquoise feathers are stripped. So we see a hint of the skeletal ribcage look of the feather mm-hmm. structure beneath. 
And framed by the feathers, we have this rather feathery image of a woman, presumably Calliope. She's covering her naked breasts with her arms, and she's not looking out at us. Her gaze is Mm -hmm. upward or sort of inward. And behind her, we see the shadows of birds in flight, reminding us Mm -hmm. of the freedom she has lost. If you look more closely, you can also see the scratches of words, like the story ideas Maddox compulsively writes in his own blood on the walls of an alley, presumably. You've pointed out that in Sandman, you do not want to go into an alley. Alleys are always bad, I think. I have not seen anything good happen in an alley yet. Who knows, though, because we've got the whole rest of Sandman to go. Um, This is the thing that I love, though, about Dave McKean is that we have these images of Calliope in this story where she herself is skeletal, right? And so he takes the resonance of the stripped feathers that also have that skeletal look to them and and uses those to kind of talk about the skeletal way that, that Calliope looks, you know, because she's being starved and abused. Um, I find that so interesting. And I love the way that he he does that, the way that he works with resonances and reflections more than like literal representations. Um, and the idea, too, of the peacock feathers, which, of course, is the the male it's the male peacock that has these beautiful colors and that shows them off and that tries to get all the attention. And of course, that has resonance with both Erasmus Fry and Richard Maddock in this. Um, so, yeah, I find all of those um, elements and the way that, that Dave draws them together. It is so dreamy, you know, in that sense. It's so dreamy in the way that... Um, that McKean takes these symbols that are resonant and reflective and uses them in a way that speaks to an element that could have been portrayed more literally, but he just doesn't do that. It's so, like, I love what he does. Me too. And I think the peacock feathers also, for me, convey some of that Victorian exotic orientalism mm-hmm. of the time yeah. the way in which and i'm i'm saying orientalism because there was this movement where they were taking aspects of the middle east and the far east and mm-hmm. bringing them into their victorian homes as a symbol of the exotic and the other and i mm-hmm. i get some of that sense of you know having captured calliope from this other world and you know, having her imprisoned in this um, very Victorian Gothic attic room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's just, there's so much that's all kind of pulled in together just to give you this incredibly evocative feel of what this story is about. Um, but we also have a new artist working on this. We have the wonderful Kelly Jones. I mm-hmm. I started work on Sandman with Season of Mists, and that was uh, Kelly Jones. So he was the first artist I really worked with on Sandman. Um, And for me, you know, like Sam Keith, Kelly's art evokes some of the weird horror of the old EC and, and some of the DC titles. You know, this isn't a Ryan Gosling Sandman. This is more Adrian Brody. He's angular. Mm-hmm. He's, um, there, there is something a little more quirky and horror for me about mm-hmm. his version of Morpheus. 
And I think he's so, so good at, first of all, the macabre elements. Mm-hmm. And then some of the just observational humor, like the literary cocktail party where we mm-hmm. see all this this wonderful array of characters. We've got the aging hippie with the leather fringed jacket and, and the head. And then we've got a, an 80s society lady wearing, mm-hmm. you know, a, a headband of the kind. I think they, they called them Alice bands. Yes. That was, mm-hmm. I, those have gone in and out of fashion. And I, I always think mm-hmm. of all the things that you could wear that will really date you. And, you know, <laughs> ah, that was the return of the Alice Band of 1997, but only the first yeah. half. Of, I'm making that up, but it does seem always mm-hmm. very, very time limited. Um, I, I think Kelly is so good. I mean, we'll talk about this more later, but... There is one really charged, I mean, there's a lot of charged moments, but one of the Mm -hmm. most charged moments is Calliope's rape at uh, Maddox's hands. And Mm -hmm. the way this is handled with that uh, focus in that very horizontal panel where all our attention is on her face, her anguish, and on the place where his hand is gripping hers and she's gone limp, it is... Mm -hmm a de-eroticized rape. I, yeah. I, I hope I'm saying that right. I don't mean to say that that rape is by its nature erotic. That's not what I'm trying to say. But so often, particularly... The portrayal can the be. The portrayal mm-hmm. of, of rape, sometimes I think unintentionally, yeah. um, by, by not having a clear focus on the suffering, then can mm-hmm. render it... Um, yeah unintentionally erotic yeah 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 and we're very focused on her face in that panel and on her limpness and and there is that it's it's a actually a really good portrayal of the dissociative you know effect um that when you you know when something like this happens a lot of times you just leave your body while it's happening and then when it's done you come back in you know and so we can kind of see that that suffering but also that that going away you know, in Calliope as she's as she's suffering all of these uh, these horrible torments under these two truly, truly terrible men. Um, and, uh, you know, just everybody, you know, clear. This is clear. Kelly Jones, the artist, is a man. We're not talking about Dr. Kelly Jones, who is, of course, my co-host on a million different podcasts, who is a woman, different people. But this is a new Kelly Jones. Um one of the things that uh, that I really did enjoy in this is is once again kind of going back to dreams and stories, the understanding of dreams as stories, as significance, as meaning making, you know. Um, and uh, and what I love is that dream is he has the power of stories, and so he is able to send all of these story ideas to Matic, you know, using them in abundance to torture him, like, be careful what you wish for, you know, you just might get it. Um, and I kind of love that, that the thing that Matic chased is the thing that ends up bringing him down. Um, that has a, a lovely kind of uh, symmetry to it that I enjoy. Um, and it reminds me his, his, uh, his kind of uh, growing insanity in that moment reminds me of the effect on, of course, I'm going to bring everything back to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, to the episode in season three of Buffy called Earshot, where she suddenly got the ability to hear other people's thoughts. 
and the the loudness and the din and how unrelenting it was um, ended up, you know, making her basically catatonic at a certain point. Um, so I found this, you know, like kind of a very interesting thing. And I liked that um, that reflection with Maddox getting exactly what he wanted. I you know, as you're talking, first of all, I'm also a huge Buffy fan from way back. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've told you this, but when I was at Wesleyan, I mm-hmm. ended up not taking a film class. I, I was in the first uh, class and I thought, oh, it's too technical for me. And I regret mm-hmm. it ever after leaving it. But um, Joss Whedon would have been the TA in that class. Oh, my goodness. And I was uh, I, I was connected because Kit Reed um, was my advisor, a wonderful writer. Mm-hmm. And her husband, Joe Reed, was the head of film at Wesleyan. And he he had brought Joss in. Anyway, mm-hmm. the funny thing also for me about this, of course, is that like Neil, Joss is so, so good at mm-hmm. mining the the emotional and psychological quirky side of of paranormal and having paranormal be a metaphor for all that it seems that perhaps there was more of that disconnect between Mm -hmm. um you know self-awareness and um and literary awareness I don't know if I'm (laughs) saying that right um but it it yeah so well enough of that the other thing that I was wanting to say about this is that as a writer myself I really relate to this the the story's depiction of the twin writer hells the freezing mm-hmm. inferno of no ideas and the burning inferno of too many ideas what do I focus on yeah yeah it's it's a feast or famine kind of situation and when you're dealing with creativity a lot of times it's it's the fear of not having ideas that makes you freeze up you know so it's it's finding your zen in that space is really important and you know and here we have you know these two guys who who brutally cheated at this whole game you know um but one of the other things that i noticed um here is that once again we've got to have this discussion about dream and women because what is up with dream ending up hating all of the women that he has dated i mean this feels like a repetition of what we saw with nada you know, that he was so mad at her, he, you know, condemned her to 10,000 years in hell, you know. Um, and then when we got that story, it was like, okay, she didn't deserve that. You know, uh, she didn't really do anything wrong. She was trying to prevent the destruction of her people, which happened anyway, thanks to you, Dream, but you know, whatever. And then here we have Calliope, and I don't know anything about their story, um, but it does sound pretty tragic you know, I mean, we've got some things, uh, you know, uh, between them. They've had a kid together. Um, you know, that kid's story, I think, as I as I understand, is going to be uh, pretty tragic as well. Um, but I don't understand Dream's relationship with women. I don't, I mean, I know that early on you said that somebody had said that Dream doesn't like women. And I definitely don't think that that's true. I don't see misogyny here. But what I see is, is such, for somebody who is endless, who has lived millennia, Dream is a pouty little baby man. I mean, when it comes to these women. Oh, yes. I mean, he is, <laughs> he is very much that. You know, there's, I don't know where this comes from exactly. I think there's some internet thing 
called Mm -hmm. Am I the Asshole? And people can write in and say, (laughs) so my girlfriend refused to, you know, stay with me. So I consigned her to a millennia in hell. Am I the Mm -hmm. asshole? Um, Am I the asshole? (laughs) And I I think I... I think Pardon that- me, I have to go tweet something. No, <laughs> and I think you know, I for me, it's 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 not a baby. It's really Morpheus as a twenty-something, very romantic dude, and I mm-hmm. I think of him as being in the same category as a young Bob Dylan. And really, I mean, I can imagine if if Bob Dylan had written, you know, like. Hey, uh, I've been involved with like a girl. She's also like a singer in her own right. But I, I felt like after the breakup, I really wanted everyone to know that I didn't care. Am I the <laughs> asshole? And I, I, uh, I think the answer would be yes. Yes, mm-hmm. Bob Dylan. Um, you know, uh, I, 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 I'm sorry. I'm referring to like every song of his, which always ends up, you know, being yeah. being some, you know. People a little petulant. Taylor Swift yeah. for writing about mm-hmm. her breakups, but uh, yeah. I, no mm-hmm. one, no, no one said, "Oh, every other song of Bob Dylan's was a breakup song." Anyway, I'm mm-hmm. sorry, I'm really digressing here. But no, I that's think, all right. I think what we get here, like in the uh, in certain Bob Dylan songs, is this mm-hmm. mixture of passion and resentment, and this kind of thin cloak of world weary cynicism. But mm-hmm. it's masking a child's narcissistic rage. How could you not be there for me, me, when the world revolves around me? Wow. Yeah, you know, interesting. And all of this stuff, of course, was before um, before Dream was captured. And we open this with Dream getting captured So, you know, we've no idea of who he was before, but as we are learning more and more about who he was and who he used to be, you can see that the dream that we've gotten to know is very much a dream post-character arc, that there there are things in him that are changing now uh, from who he was before, which I think is is really, really good. Um, But Calliope is, you know, pissed at him, too. And she's like, I don't even want to talk to him, you know. Um, And then, of course, the three are like, well, it doesn't matter anyway, because he's locked up at the moment. So you're fucked, Um, you know, and and everybody's everybody's, you know, in hell. Um, But uh, but Calliope, um, we've got we've got this one line in here uh, for Calliope that um, when she's remembering the moment that she had her scroll burned, you know, and Erasmus Fry took over, it opens with it had been her fault. And first of all, like in this moment, I'm like, God damn it. No, it's not your fault. But of course, she's going to think that because when you're victimized, that's the first thing you think. How is this my fault? How could I have prevented this? What could I have done? So even though, no, it's not her fault. And I don't think that the text is saying that it is rubber stamping her perspective on this. It is very accurate to the victim, you know, experience, at least as far as I've had it, you know, um, where you look at all of the ways in which you contributed to this and you made this happen. And I think, you know, at least for me, I think there's something about taking back control when you have none, 
Um, if you make it your fault, it is under your control. And I think there is a need to feel like you have some control when you're in a situation like that. Um, so, you know, I mean, the idea that like, you know, she was the one she put down her scroll, you know, she should never put down her scroll, um, because she wanted to like, uh, take a bath, you know, or like go in the water or whatever. And that, and the idea that she cannot put down her scroll, such a simple thing for her own convenience so she can take a dip because men are terrible and they're going to come out and they're going to burn your scroll and then, you know, victimize you for the next 60 years. It's just really, really terrible. And of course, it's, you know, Fry's fault. It's Maddox's fault. It's not Calliope's fault. But that moment when she said that, my first response was, God damn it. And my second response is so accurate, you know, to that experience and to that feeling. Yeah, I, I find it really powerful when you, you talk about this. And, you know, you had mentioned this idea that, that, you know, they had, that they had acted, someone had acted according to the rules that she'd been captured according to the rules. And yeah, it, you are lawfully bound. Well, right? it had me reflecting, are those mm -hmm. the laws of magic that are like laws of physics? Or mm -hmm. are they more like the code of Hammurabi? These are a code of laws. And it it made me reflect. I, I think it's the latter. And I think that what mm -hmm. we're seeing here is even in the realm of, of these magical beings, what is legal is not always ethical. Yeah. And, you mm -hmm. know, this is, this seems to be some kind of very old law and laws tend to favor the lawmakers. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and the idea that there would be a, a weird magical loophole, you know, through which she could be captured. You know, if somebody if somebody sees her scroll, if she doesn't have it, if they grab it, if they burn it, you know, then they take ownership of her. Um, you know, where why would that law be made? You know, it's like the laws, you know, you ever see those like a uh, list of laws in, in towns, these weird town laws, like you can't walk your pig on the street on a Thursday, you know, stuff like that. It's like, what is this weird ass law that allows somebody to have ownership of Calliope? And, you know, the thing is, is that whenever there's great power in stories, it's it's always balanced by some incredible vulnerability. It's always balanced by something that could take that power away or corrupt it in some way. Um, and so I think that it makes sense that, you know, that there was a law that, you know, that was made that would make it possible if she wasn't diligent and vigilant in every moment, you know, that this could happen to her. Yeah, I think, I mean, I see Calliope in two ways. In one, she is a person and a woman, and mm -hmm. we are definitely in, invited to see her as that. But in the other, in her status as a muse, she mm -hmm. is also a resource. So in the same way that Fiddler's Green is a yeah. place and a person, she is a resource and a person. She is mm -hmm. an idea and a person. And I think that we are only now as humans beginning to look at our relationship two resources and to say yeah. you know when it comes to the ocean or to forests do these entities have some right to exist 
And if so, what rights, how do we negotiate our ability to partake of these resources without destroying the resource mm -hmm. itself? So yeah. I, I, I think actually there's some really interesting legal ethical thinking that's going on here that really is decades ahead of its time. Yeah, no, I mean, there is a lot of that, you know, in, in this. Um, I find uh, Sandman to be... Um, to be ahead of like really timely now, mm -hmm. you know, even though it was 30 years ago. And I will say, you know, like uh, we've mentioned Joss Whedon as somebody who has gone through, you know, his his oeuvre, right? Um, and analyzed all of it and everything. And let's, you know, let's hear it for our problematic fave. You know, uh, there's this moment where Maddox is at the literary party and he says, actually, I do tend to regard myself as a feminist writer. And I'm like, that is exactly what Joss Whedon will say in about 10 years time after this was written, um, which are maybe, maybe not quite 10 years, but yeah, you know, a few more years time when, when Buffy came out um, and he got a lot of credit for something that I'm not sure he actually intended to do. Um, but, uh, but, you know, it is, it's just, it's really interesting to think about all of the ways in which Sandman is so incredibly relevant to things that we are struggling with now. Um, and, you know, and part of that is, you know, I've, I've read this, um, this issue and have struggled with this issue. Um, and once again, we're coming to a place where we have like a helpless woman who is damseled, who in this case is imprisoned by men. She's raped by men. She's controlled and exhausted by men only to need a man to save her. Um, and you know, fine, you can go into the whole damseline thing and that argument is there. It's textually supportable. I'm just not interested in that argument right now because while we do have this, this kind of repetition of these damseled characters in Sandman, the thing that I realized while reading Calliope is that it's not a narrative that is about the male savior in the way that the the white savior narratives happen right where we have white people who are just helping the poor black people and it's so white centered and it's all about giving the white person a cookie because they're such a good white person for helping the black people and we don't even think about the black characters or what their lives are what their experiences are what their perspective is you know and with Damseline, sometimes that happens where the man comes in and he saves them and he's the big hero and everybody's like, oh, thank goodness. And she flutters her eyes at him, you know. And the thing that I noticed is missing from that, making this not a, you know, male savior narrative, is that Sandman is never celebrated for saving anybody. He's saving people over and over and over again, often women who are damseled. And, and we don't celebrate, we don't jump up and down and be like, Oh, my hero, you know, with with Sandman. Instead, he follows up these rescues with an act of empathy. And then goes away sad and not seeming to feel any better about himself at all. And to me, what I what I picked up after Calliope is that it feels to me like this is a shame narrative. 
Um, you know, these men who rescue are not celebrated, Sandman least of all. They are treated textually like it is the least they can do. Um, you know, and if anything, when we see this, oh, my hero, it's it's mocking. We're mocking that kind of nonsense with Hector Hall and Wesley Dodd and those kinds of characters. You know, we're sort of making fun of that. Um, and to me, it feels like it feels like Dream saying I can save women as much as I want, and it will never be enough. It will never be enough. It will never make up for all of the things that it, that have happened. It will never make up for the 60 years that Calliope spent in this torment. Um, and to me, that makes this one thing that we keep coming back to is Dream's repeated empathy power play, right? Um, Post-rescue. It makes that so much more interesting to me. Um, rescuing someone, be they male or female, is never enough. Um, even the resulting grace Sandman uses his power to give is never enough. And forgive me for getting binary in my gender discussion here. Um, I, I am doing that because we are dealing with um, with these people who are identifying as these two genders. Um, we did get um, a tweet from somebody who was very kind to correct us on some of our gendered uh, discussion, and we will try to keep an eye on that. Um, but right now, I think what I'm discussing is very much about that male rescues female kind of historical dynamics. I'm going to have to ask forgiveness for talking in this binary way. Um, but well, let me, I can't. Can I, oh, I'm sorry. Can I, I'm Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry about that. I just I wanted to jump in because I'm thinking about the the way gender plays in to this mm -hmm. story and and to these you know, to these roles, because I do think there is some way in which we we are reading Morpheus as male in this, very definitely mm -hmm. as male. Yeah. We don't see him in the Sandman. Uh, I don't believe we ever see him in feminine aspect, although mm -hmm. presumably that would be accessible in, in some way. Sure. But I, I do think that in this story, and again, I mean, I I am a product of of different generations, and I am mm -hmm. a work in progress, and definitely <laughs> wanting to to grow. But I I think that you you are right in that Morpheus is just learning empathy because of yeah. his ordeal, and I think that prior to that, he was a character who felt compassion, feeling for the plight of others but i don't think he identified with and i think right. that for all that he was married to calliope had a child with her i think this is the first time he is truly identified with her mm -hmm. yeah which i think is kind of an interesting it's just an interesting thing and it just feels like a like a processing of of shame over being complicit in people's pain, you know? And I mean, he is complicit in other pain. Like, Nada is still in hell. Let's not forget that. She's still sitting there, you know? Um, so there is something about that that just feels like processing of a shame narrative for me. And it, it makes this... Um, so much more interesting and this this repetition that we're seeing um, and especially empathy as power play, which was your insight. And I've all I found that so interesting ever since you, you said that. Um, so I love kind of 
um, seeing that in this story. Um, and it makes it, it, this is the, this is actually the thing that gave me traction into Calliope. Whereas I was, I was kind of resisting going too deep into it because it was really, it's really difficult for me to engage with that kind of a story. Um, but, uh, but this is what kind of gave me my access point to it. As I was thinking about gender and mm-hmm. Calliope, I was also thinking about the story of the bad art friend that appeared Mm -hmm. in the New York Times, where one woman was a friendly acquaintance of another. They were both writers. And uh, one woman really took many personal aspects of the other woman's story uh, that had Mm -hmm. really happened to her in her life and turned it into thinly, thinly uh, digested fiction. Yeah, very thinly. (laughs) But yeah. that that is the aspect that most writers, mm-hmm. I think, have ended up talking about that, yes, we all do take from our friends, from strangers, from mm-hmm. relatives. We, we do end up scavenging bits of other people's stories. And the only way to live as a writer is to digest that fully enough and really make it your own story. And Mm -hmm. so it's not just about disguising it, like putting a Groucho mustache and glasses on, you Mm -hmm. know, your best friend's, uh, you know, kidney donation. It is about finding a way to turn that into a story that is truly your own. Mm -hmm. And, you know, otherwise we really do end up abusing the many muses in our lives. Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So let's move into Lucian's library. Just as a warning, uh, this is where we kind of go a little bit deeper and there may be some spoilers uh, to come. Uh, we're probably not going to spoil anything too much. Um, but you had some uh, kind of thoughts about the a fame narrative in this story. Fame. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, so this story is a reflection on fame. But at the time of writing, I think Neil was around 25. Mm-hmm. He was probably as much a journalist as a writer. He had a piece on comics that came out in the UK publication Time Out. Mm-hmm. But he's already very much fascinated by the magic of fame mm-hmm. and the power and the danger of it. In, you know, in the interview section of the of Calliope, we see that Maddox has surpassed the fame of Erasmus Fry, which mm-hmm. was presumably his goal. But yeah. in the end, fame doesn't protect Maddox from losing his gift. Mm-hmm. And we see him at the end buying a, a Time Out magazine. Um, so I, I think I think it's just interesting to me to think about how much this very young incarnation of Neil was reflecting on fame, was imagining a world in which a writer would get so successful that he could direct the movies of his novels, Mm -hmm. uh, a fate which will uh, elude most of us scribes, but (laughs) but which definitely has happened with Neil. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm, I'm wondering what story about success Neil would tell now and Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if we'll get to see some hint of that in the Netflix version of Calliope 
Yeah. Um, I have to. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. I need to tell you. That yeah. I So no one can see this, but just <laughs> as I said that, these gold eyes appeared <laughs> over your shoulder. And then I could just see a dark, like a black cat with That's just the gold cat. eyes in the shadows behind your face. It was so <laughs> deliciously spooky. <laughs> Lonnie, that was. I just have to tell you that was such a perfect comic book moment because, you know, your face is this lovely, you know, lit up lightness in a very dark room. And then suddenly gold eyes are over one of your shoulder. It was just, uh, I really wish we could have the video for that. Well, okay. So now what I was going to say before we were interrupted by the glowing yellow eyes of my satanic cat um is that fame to me sounds like a hellscape um and i think to me it would be the price that you pay to be able to do a particular kind of work um and not a bonus of that um but just because it it sounds terrible to me um but you know some people i think would handle it really well though so some people probably do just fine with it but i just don't think that i would um but i do find it interesting now that neil is on the other side of that experience that he's you know he's had a great deal of fame he has a great deal of fame um if that's going to affect the way this story gets told in the netflix series i'm very very much looking forward to seeing how that how that ends up Oh, so I have I have a, a small, I guess, Lucienne's library tidbit yeah. um, that's not in the script. Uh, at one point, when Neil was just getting to a, a much greater level of notoriety, mm-hmm. uh, I think he said to me something like, you really don't care that I'm famous, do you? And I said, <laughs> oh, no, I care. It's a pain in the ass. <laughs> it seems like it would yeah. be. It, you know, it just it, seems terrible. It was, you know, it had begun to be like a little more difficult to just plan things in a totally casual way. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, so that was, that was <laughs> a thing. Um, so one of the things, Lani, that I did want to talk to you a little bit was this whole idea of ex-lovers and the relationship one mm-hmm. has with ex-lovers or ex-spouses, really, in yeah. this case. Mm-hmm. So yep. um, at, at the end of the story, Dream calls Calliope child when she mm-hmm. asks if they can remain in contact as friends. He, he rebuffs her. You know, he says that wouldn't be a good idea. And I, I mean, I pride myself on staying on good terms with most of my, uh, you mm-hmm. know, exes. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And um I just there was something about the 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 way he said, you know, I don't think that would be a good idea. It just it's very paternalistic, very, mm-hmm. very condescending. I wanted to just hit him on his hair until it was flat. <laughs> yeah, it does seem a weird way to talk to her. And, you know, it's a very distancing kind of language. You know, um, it puts a uh, like a hierarchy between them. He calls her child. That wouldn't be a good idea. And like, why wouldn't it be a good idea? Like, yeah. What, why... what was going to happen? I mean, was yeah. w- was he going to become so overwhelmed with love that they were going to turn into the Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor of mythology? Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't know. 
I, I mean, I, 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 do we ever find, do we ever hear about Calliope again? I mean, not to spoil too much, but just a yes or a no is fine. Yes, we do. But I don't think the answer of why that wouldn't be a good idea. I mean, I guess, mm-hmm. I guess the idea of why that wouldn't be a good idea is that whole fear that, oh, if we got back together, we would just replay the same saga and end up breaking up again. Yeah, but also it's possible, Dream, just possible that she could resist you and not be interested in being with you, but maybe just want to catch up because you have a kid together. You know, like my kid's dad and I are very close. We still have a great relationship. You know, we talk all the time um, and the kids think it's weird how like, you know, we'll sit there and call each other just to sit, just to chat and catch up, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, like, so I don't know. It, it does feel a little weird that um that he's just completely shutting that down and uh and i guess that's just going to be one of the unanswered questions speaking of questions i have a list of my questions for the editor and i am so excited that i have you right here with me and i can just ask you um all right so here's this thing erasmus fry his his price for calliope was bizarre which is supposed to protect people from poison and it's a rapunzel bizarre the woman who was kept in the tower and imprisoned, which also has significance here. Um, and in the end, he is poisoned. It is presumed he poisoned himself. But why would he get a bazaar if he's afraid of poisoning and then poison himself? It feels to me like I like to think, you know, I like to, you know, headcanon this, that Calliope did something to him that he once upon letting her go that he was going to be poisoned. He knew it and he was trying to protect himself from it. Feels to me like foul play made to look like suicide, in which case I would just simply say, well done. Um, But I don't know if that's what happened. It just seems a bit of a coincidence that he died of poisoning. You are so clever at noticing these things. And I, I don't think I ever twigged to that, but Mm -hmm. I I do think psychologically there is a way in which we are drawn to and fascinated by the things that frighten us the most. Mm-hmm. So I think that people who are terrified of heights, yeah, that there is that weird paradoxical pull to heights. And so, you know, I can imagine another possibility is just that this man who most feared being poisoned. Mm -hmm. would, when he decided to kill himself, choose poison as a a kind of, uh, it's, it's kind of like that thing where they tell you not to prophecy. Well, yes. And also, you know, when you're driving, they used to say uh, something which I can never remember it. And then they simplified it into look at, look at the thing, look in the direction you want to go because people tend to steer toward whatever they're looking at. So for Mm -hmm. example, if your car is suddenly heading for a tree and you're looking at the tree because you don't want to hit it, you don't realize it, but you are actually steering toward the tree. So maybe Erasmus Uh was steering toward Mm -hmm. poison. Maybe he was steering toward poison. I don't know. I thought it felt to me like such a specific detail. And I was like, oh, there's got to be some significance to that. But you know, whatever. And and it's wonderful sometimes to have these little unanswered questions in there. It's fun. Um, Another unanswered question, and I'm not quite sure what the significance of this is, but it cannot be a coincidence. Maddox is wearing an Ankh earring. And that, of course, is death's symbol. And what does that mean? He doesn't die in this, you know, I mean, he's, 
like, but it, it's related to dream. He's got an onk. I don't know. What do you think that is? You know, I, this is one of those questions that I, I find myself asking myself, did I know this at one point and I have simply <laughs> forgotten as I forgot that I had asked Neil not to kill Matthew the Raven? Right. <laughs> um, I, I I would never ask such a thing. Neil, you know, writes me and says that you did. I, who was I? Um, I don't know. I think, I mean, I'm sort of reading it as a sign of the dichotomy between the part of him that is intellectual and pagan mm-hmm. and bohemian and understands these symbols and can play with these symbols in his work. And yet there is this huge disconnect between him carrying that awareness into his life and into his personal choices. Mm. Because, you know, if if you really do understand death and rebirth and 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 anything, you know, as, as philosophically loaded as that, how could you mm-hmm. keep a, a, a mythic creature, you know, imprisoned and wearing, you know, nothing yeah. but your boxer, your, your not even boxers, those tidy whities that, that men used to wear. So gross. They, this is inappropriate, but I'm just going to mm-hmm. say I, I kind of like those under. I find them really uh-huh. comfortable. Like mm-hmm. I find men's bikini briefs to be the most comfortable underwear. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't think it's a kinky thing. I think I just like wearing men's underwear sometimes, but I don't know. So I there is no shame in it. I just, you know, so when I see Calliope, you know, wearing mm-hmm. just the men's under, I I think, you know, I know it's a sign that she has nothing of her own and it's wrong. But, yeah. but I, I would wear those underwear. But they're very comfortable. All right. Okay. Elisa, what is your favorite page in Calliope? Oh, visually, I have long mm-hmm. loved the page where we see London all magical and sparkly. And then mm-hmm. Erasmus Fry lets us in to his house like a horror host from an old EC comic. Mm-hmm. How about you? Yeah. What, what is, does what have is that feel? steaming your clams? I I love the page where Maddox starts to go mad. Um, oh, God, the panels all in these tr- jagged triangle shapes with jagged edges on the panels. And you can see him beginning to shatter at the edges. And it's so beautifully, you know, evoked by this artwork. Um, I absolutely love it. I think it's so cool looking. And once again, like a testimony to what artists can do within a comic book. I'm so loving learning this comic book language. It's so fun reading all this stuff. Um, so what's your favorite part of the story? Oh, my favorite part. I, I think the cocktail party. There mm-hmm. is such a, a wonderful trove of, of social satire in there. And mm-hmm. I just have always loved that contradiction between um, Maddox writing and how he was in his writing and you know and, and us understanding what he's like in his personal life wait can I just tell you some one last yes. weird thing so of course I was reading some of my mom's old letters to my father Aww. and uh, my father was a science fiction writer Robert Checkley Mm-hmm. And uh, she describes going to a party at Hydra. And she said, mm-hmm. guess who? Like, I, she describes someone like coming up behind her and wrapping her in a heavy embrace. And 
And then she she uh, says, yeah, you guessed it, Ike Asimov. He didn't remember having met me before, but he did the exact same thing the last time he met me. <laughs> and, uh, and then she goes on, and I guess there were a lot of, you know, old-fashioned mm-hmm. dudes, including someone who came up and spoke to her for about half an hour. It might have been, I don't know, I, I have to go and check all the names. These are like famous old science fiction guys. And one was convinced that my mom was my dad's first wife. So oh. it was, anyway, I, I, I'm i sort of associating that uh, Hydra Hydra, by the way, was the name of the science fiction association of writers before it was mm-hmm. uh, Marvel supervillains. Marvel supervillains. <laughs> so I yeah. love that. I yeah, was telling so my daughter, she was like, history Hydra? of literary. <laughs> Grandma was a part of Hydra. Uh, anyway, sorry. Uh, that was so the cocktail party. I loved the cocktail party. What it. about you, Lonnie? Oh, I liked seeing Maddox suffer. I, I liked seeing him get what he deserved so poetically by getting what exactly what he wanted. Um, that's always fun to me when somebody bad gets exactly what they want, and it is absolutely what takes them down. So that is very, very fun for me. Uh, before we close today, though, I would like to shout out to another fabulous Sandman podcast that I found called Hanging Out with the Dream King from Clay Temple Media. It is a scholarly look at the comic issues, and it it is really, really good. Um, I only listen to an episode after I've already done ours so uh, so that I don't accidentally steal their ideas because I'm always afraid that's going to happen. Uh, but every time I listen, I regret not stealing their ideas. They're so good. They're so smart. Um, and, but if Endless isn't enough Sandman comic talk for you, you need to listen to them. They're just getting into Seasons of Myths now, um, which, uh, of course, is where Elisa came in. So it's going to be very, very fun to listen to those. Oh, absolutely. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter. Follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag EndlessPodcast or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Endless is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jane, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, and Stephania. And this week's special message for our power producers, there is nothing we can do for you and nothing you can do but hope to find out how you too can support chipperish media visit patreon.com chipperish other ways to show your support write a great review on apple podcasts tell your friends about the show or just let her go this episode of endless was edited by chipperish content editor jack cram jack writers are liars my dear surely you've realized that by now we will be back next time with Dream of a Thousand Cats with black with golden eyes jumping up on my shoulder. <laughs> Issue number 18 of the Sandman series. Until then, so tell me, where do you get your ideas? <laughs> <laughs>